Okay, so hi everybody. This is Karen Fabian, founder of Bare Bones Yoga, and I want to welcome you back, of course, to the podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. And I also want to welcome you back to this special podcast episode series that I'm doing. Uh, it's the end of January 2020. So depending on when you're listening, you may be listening in kind of real time in terms of when these episodes are going live, or you may be listening at some point in the future, in which case the content that I share is going to be absolutely applicable still, although where this series all ends up may not apply to you as much if you're not listening in real time. So if you are listening right when these episodes are launching, I'm going to tell you that you're going to get the biggest benefit if you stick with it and listen to these episodes one after the other in the, on the days that they are actually released. And my commitment to you is to keep these episodes short so that you have time to fit them into your schedule. So yesterday's episode was called, um, what's the one thing teachers come to me to learn? And if you haven't listened to that one yet, go listen to it now, because it's not going to make sense to listen to today's until you listen to that one. Although you can listen to this one and then go back. So today, what I wanted to do, because yesterday I went through that the main thing teachers come to me to learn is anatomy. And so I went through some of the challenges in our industry and why I believe so many teachers are coming to me, and I'm sure other teachers too, but why the common theme that I hear is, number one, I want to learn more about anatomy. Number two, I specifically want to learn how to cue. And then I went over different kinds of cues you can give when you teach. So today's episode is called Five Anatomy-Based Cues and Why. And this is really at the heart of all I do, which is to say that if you are using anatomy-based cues, and you don't know the why behind the cue, number one, <laughs> you are really out of integrity, right? And, and that may hit you as something that sounds a bit harsh or sounds like, you know, kind of, kind of abrupt. Um, but I want you to think about, if you haven't read the book, uh, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, one of the things that he talks about in there is um, being impeccable with your word. And there's nothing that speaks to impeccability more, or I guess I, let me say it like this. There's nothing more important than as a teacher of any topic to speak impeccably. And that doesn't mean that you have to speak in a way that's very formal, right? So you might hear the word impeccable and think, oh, that sounds so formal and stuffy. No, what it means, at least what it means to me is that you have to truly know what you're talking about. You can't just be standing there as a teacher saying stuff you've heard, and then when questioned about it, say, well, that was how I was taught, which I have heard from teachers, which is a complete abdication of your personhood to somebody else. Now, you may be listening to this saying, oh God, well, that's how I was taught. I, I, in the context of being a yoga teacher, I invested in a training, I went to a training, I trusted that the person sharing the information knew what they were talking about. I took that information and I took it as truth. And now I'm out there saying what that person told me to say. I get it, right? There are definite challenges with the way teachers are trained. 
I'm not here to revamp the system, right? And I'm not here to bash the system. I'm here after many, many years of being a teacher, 15, 16 years, and talking to teachers and hearing what the gaps are and having a particular area of expertise, i.e. anatomy, and I'm here to try to bridge the gap. And in that process, I am um, developing my own thoughts and concerns uh, about the path we're on as an industry. And part of what I'm trying to do, short of kind of taking it on uh, on a massive level, is coming up with opportunities for teachers to build their impact, to grow their confidence uh, by filling in some of these gaps. So in today's episode, taking in mind this gap of wanting to learn anatomy-based cues, I thought what I'd give you is a taste of what some of this is like when you really know the why behind the cue. And I'm gonna use some examples of things that you're probably already saying and you may not know the reason why behind the cue. I'm gonna share some things that maybe you've never heard of. Um, part of the why behind the cue might be stuff that, um, you know, you might say, wow, I had no idea. So this is gonna be hopefully good takeaways that guess what? You can start using right away in your teaching. So from listening to this episode, the time that you spend is gonna give you an exact immediate payoff for free, right? No, no other thing than time that you needed to invest to get these takeaways that you can immediately use in your teaching when you teach your next class. So here's question or here's uh, cue number one. Cue number one is, uh, as you move from high to low push-up, hug your elbows into your side body. Hug your elbows in towards your rib cage. Pin your elbows in towards the side of the body. So do you ever wonder why people say that? So if you listen to last, yesterday's episode, and I know you have, because I know that you want this to work for you, this whole series, so I know you're going to stick with it, right? So in yesterday's episode, I talked about the different kinds of cues, and I said, you can teach from action, you can teach from alignment, you can teach from anatomy, you can teach from feeling. So many of you may say, well, hey, you're just supposed to hug your elbows in towards your spine, but why are you supposed to do that? Like put yourself in your three-year-old brain that constantly asks why. Why is the sky blue? Why is the sun up? Why is the moon up? Where did the sun go? Right? This is the kind of inquisitiveness I want you to have when it comes to the things that you're saying, especially if you've been teaching for a while and you've just been parroting all this stuff without really understanding why. So think about when you move somebody from high to low push-up. They're fighting gravity, they're facing the floor, and the weight of their head is in part competing with the alignment that they wish to maintain. If they were standing up and they had their hands on a wall and you asked them to lower in towards the wall, it'd be a heck of a lot easier because they were standing up. But as soon as you put them on the ground and you have their palms facing down, they've got to fight the weight of their head because that is gonna have a tendency to just drop. And when the head drops, the body is going to kind of form a hunching type shape. And when the body begins to hunch, the shoulder blades or the scapula are gonna to begin to lift up. They're gonna to begin to elevate. And so when that happens, something's doing that. They're not just doing it by magic. So if you then kind of peel back the layers, you're going to learn 
that the upper trapezius, a big flat muscle on the back of the body, is doing that action. It's doing it as part of the dynamic movement of lowering towards the floor, letting the head drop, because the trapezius starts on the occiput, which is at the base of the skull, and it attaches to the scapula themselves, if you drop your head, your scapula are going to elevate. It just, they're just gonna, because that's the way the body is built. And so if you do this in your own practice or see students doing it in their practice, you can be damn sure that it's really uncomfortable. And so what we need to do is we need to offer them an alternative to hunching and letting the weight of their head drag down. And we don't want that effect of the shoulder blades elevating. So what would we want instead? Well, hey, wouldn't it be great to keep the shoulder blades a little more steady on the back instead of them floating up towards the person's ears? Yes. And who does that? the serratus anterior. And where is the serratus anterior? Oh my God, it connects the scapula to the rib cage. Wouldn't that be a great muscle to use to counteract the effect of the upper trapezius? Yes, it would. And so when you pin your elbows close into your sides, you're activating the muscle that is responsible for doing that and keeping the shoulder blades more on the back. That is the serratus anterior. And come to find out when you look at, you know, kind of exercise science data across the population, you find out that people in general, what do you think they have? Really weak serratus anteriors and really overactive upper traps. If you think about half the reason why people go to get massages, it's because they have a quote unquote pain in my neck. And when you think about the posture that most of us have during the day, hunching over our desks, hunching over our phones, it's no wonder our upper traps are tight because they're constantly in passive contraction and the serratus as a result is not doing its job. And so though that muscle tends to be weak. So that's number one. Number two, how about the block between the thighs, right guys? Have you done this, taught this, wondered what the heck is the reason to say uh, to a student, hey, put a block between your thighs when you're in bridge and wheel. So here's the deal. Think about yourself on your back, setting your feet flat and setting up for bridge. Then the teacher says, hey, grab a block and put it between your thighs. What's the action you're doing? They'll probably say, hug your thighs in towards the block. When you hug your thighs in towards the block and then lift your hips up, what is that block asking you to do? Well, it's asking you, maybe you've never thought of it, but it's asking you to keep your feet straight and keep your thighs moving towards one another and therefore keep your hips a little bit more neutral rather than doing the opposite. Sometimes it's easier if we think about the opposite, which is to turn the feet out and then turn the hips out, right? Cause you can't turn the feet out without turning the hips out. It's up the chain, the hips are higher up. So if I open my hips, I open my feet. Now, if you've ever tried to do a back bend, full wheel pose, turning your feet out, you've probably experienced what a lot of people do, which is compression in the lower back. It sometimes doesn't literally feel like compression. It might just feel uncomfortable. And as a teacher, you might notice when you're teaching wheel, people get so far up and then they stop. And it seems like they've hit a wall. And you may wonder what the heck is happening? Why can't they get up more into that back bend? So here's the deal. When you come uh, into wheel pose, you're bringing your hips into extension. The main muscle that's extending your hip is the gluteus maximus, one part of the three-part glutes. 
the gluteus maximus does two main things, hip extension and hip external rotation. In order to prevent the hips from externally rotate in a back bend, whether it's bow pose, locust pose, uh, wheel pose, camel pose, put a block between the thighs. Now I will add on that an even better way to keep the feet straight is to put the block between the feet. And I guarantee you, if you teach block between the feet, and I don't mean parallel to the feet, it's gotta be perpendicular to the feet, between the feet, so students have hip width. You don't want their feet too narrow. You want about hip width at the base. That will really help them. Now, you're not going to say that they need to force themselves to keep their insteps pressed against the block. You're going to ask them to build an awareness because what is the issue here? The issue is most students, if I don't even know hardly any student, and I don't even think if a physician or physical therapist came to class, they'd even think of this. When they're coming into wheel, they're not really thinking, hey, I just want to use my hips for, I just want to use my glute max for hip extension here, but I don't want to use them for external rotation. They're just thinking about the pose. They're thinking about the cues you're giving them, and they're thinking about how they're going to get up and back in this challenging posture. The block between the feet is going to keep their awareness more at the position of their feet and give them an opportunity to say to their body, to train the nervous system to discern between the glute max's ability to extend and externally rotate and try to kind of combat the external rotation ability of glute max and focus on the main thing they want to leverage that muscle for, which is hip extension. Okay, that's that one. The next one is squeeze shoulder blades together, right? So you've probably heard, hey, you're in a standing straddle, take your fingers behind your back, interlace them, squeeze your shoulder blades together, bow forward, right? So what's happening there? Why, why do we care about this? Like, why are we asking to squeeze the shoulder blades together, but I have my fingers interlaced? Should I be focusing on my fingers? Like, this is what your students are thinking. And then they're bowing forward and they're like, oh, this is really hard. I can't keep my fingers interlaced. Am I supposed to be feeling something between my shoulder blades? Honest to God, if you had little cartoon balloons coming off of each of one of your students, I know that this is in part what they're thinking. So here's the deal, right? Because I want you to think, what if somebody comes up to you after class and says, hey, how come you ask us to squeeze our shoulder blades together there? What are you going to say, right? What are you going to say? So here's, here's the background there. What we're demonstrating by asking people to squeeze their shoulder blades together when they do a forward fold, or even if they do it from standing, is we're asking them to exercise uh, an agonist-antagonist pair. So muscles in the body work in pairs. And if you think of the body, uh, you can think of it in a lot of different ways, but if you think of it as muscles in the front and muscles in the back, you can bet that they don't do the same thing. Back muscles, back body muscles do certain things, front body muscles do certain things. And you can think of them in pairs. So if I do something with muscles between my shoulder blades, it's going to have a resulting effect on the muscles in my chest. And if I do something with the muscles in my chest, it's going to have a resulting effect with the muscles in my back. So in this specific case, if I squeeze my shoulder blades together, that activates a muscle, right? Because those bones, the scapula are moving closer together. Something's got to be doing that. What's doing that? The rhomboids. As my rhomboids contract, i.e. activate, something in the front of the body has got to relax in order to allow those muscles to contract. 
If the muscles in the front are way too tight, it's going to be really hard for the muscles in the back to move the scapula closer together. However, let's say you put a strap between your hands, probably a little easier, right? So here we contract the muscles in the back, the rhomboids to squeeze the shoulder blades closer together. Those muscles are doing the work of contracting. They are the agonist. The muscles in the front of the body, in the front of the chest specifically, the pectoral muscles, as well as one of the rotator cuff muscles, which is an internal rotator, the subscapularis, those muscles have to relax to allow space in the front of the body, right? And they're relaxing or lengthening, I guess lengthening is a better word, in response to the contraction that's happening in the back body musculature, the rhomboids. So when you work with muscles in this agonist antagonistic way right you're doing something to work with this pair you're strengthening something in one place and lengthening something in another place all right so i'm going to end that one there there's a lot more i could say but just for time now two more to do fourth one micro bend the knee you've probably heard this micro bend bend a little and it usually shows up in shapes like tree pose and triangle pose and dancers pose poses where either we're standing on one leg and we have a, a definite tendency to lock that leg out, the standing leg, or in a pose like triangle, the front leg, the leg that I'm tipping down towards is taking the full weight of the pose because guess what? The torso's hanging out there in space, right? So of course that's where the weight of the body is gonna most go. If you think about the things closest to the floor as the most at risk, unless the student is aware of how to prevent that risk to those lower points in the pose, that's the reality. And that's why, again, understanding anatomy as a teacher really gives you a way to help your students prevent these kinds of injuries that don't happen in the moment. They happen over time, like little micro tears and little just things that happen. And any of you out there that have been practicing for a while, like me, that now are in physical therapy, like me, for all those years that you did yoga in a not mindful way back in the day where everybody was flipping around in hot rooms, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a newer teacher and newer to the practice and you haven't developed any of those bad habits yet, good for you. And all of this information is only going to help you from a long-term uh, perspective in terms of preventing injury. And this is one of the primary things we want to do as teachers. We want to teach in a way that we set our students up for long-term health and longevity uh, in their practice without, with lower risk of injury. So here, what are we talking about? We're talking about hyperextension. What is hyperextension? Hyper, too much extension, right? So too much straightening. If we think about the joint of the knee in this case, right? So the knee is a capsule. It's supported by muscles around it, as well as tendons and ligaments. So it's the joint right? And it's formed between the femur on top and the tibia at the bottom. And from a high level perspective, if you think about when you stand on one leg, you've got a couple of choices, right? You can stand on that one leg and completely straighten it. So the leverage point for balance becomes the joint, or you can keep it a little bit bent. And then what happens? Well, if I keep it a little bit bent, if you can kind of envision, if you've never looked at a picture of the knee, all of the connection points between the femur and the tibia not being as taut as they possibly could be, but instead a little bit, the slightest bit lax to allow 
for the practitioner to use muscle to support the joint rather than ligament and tendon. And really in a lot of cases, ligament, or really in other cases, locking bone on bone. And this is one of the reasons why we say don't lock out, right? Because once you start to chip away at the collagen-based uh, ligaments and the tendons that are supporting the joint, those things don't grow back as easily as things like muscle when they get injured. And all you need to do is look at injuries that happen to football players when they blow out their knee. Part of their rehab is building up the muscle around the joint that's been injured. You can repair it, you can go in surgically, you can inject different things into the joint space. But at the end of the day, once that joint is damaged to some degree, some of that functionality is lost. However, the muscles around it give it an op give us an opportunity to build those muscles to compensate for joint challenges, joint laxity, too much looseness, whatever it is. And if any of you out there are listening and you are a quote unquote hypermobile person, you know what I'm talking about, right? You have a lot of laxity in your joints and you go into practice and you're looking for ways to build muscle to compensate for joints that have, you know, a lot of play in them. Okay, so enough with that one. Uh, the last one, draw belly button into spine in crescent lunge, right? So you've probably heard this one, you're in crescent lunge and someone might say, hey, draw the belly button in. So let's think about that. Imagine yourself in a crescent lunge, imagine your arms are up, imagine you have this big, huge arch in the back and your belly is pressing forward. So in this type of scenario, you've got what's called a sway back. So that's known as a lordotic spine. Kyphosis is hunchback, lordotic is sway back. And so if you imagine along the up and down axis of the spine, there's all sorts of joints, facet joints, for instance. And so as we do a lot of that bending, sometimes it can create some wear and tear in those joints. Uh, of course, in something like wheel, we're doing a lot of spinal extension. It's a supported pose, hands on the ground. So, you know, again, we're going to practice in a way that's in concert with having our body uh, comfortable. We're not going to push ourselves too hard. Uh, I guess my point is there are some cases, of course, where we're taking the spine into a lot of extension. But in something like crescent lunge, if there's a lot of kind of loosey-goosiness through the spine, it's great to create some stability. So if we're in this lordotic spine with our belly sticking way out, well, of course, if we want to draw the belly in a little bit, we're going to cue them to pull the belly button in. So what's that doing? Well, if you imagine a muscle that runs from your pubic bone all the way up to your sternum, your breastbone, that muscle is going to need to be engaged in order to go from tipping way back to bringing the pelvis more level. And that muscle is called the rectus abdominis. So as you ask people to draw the belly button in towards the spine, you're asking them to take a pelvis that's way in a posterior tilt and bring it a little bit more level by engaging a muscle that literally connects to the uh, pelvis itself at the pubic bone. So those are five cues. Five cues went over the anatomical reasons why and I want you to do this. I want you to go on my Instagram and I want you to comment about any of these cues where you listened and you had an aha moment. So my Instagram is barebonesyoga.com. 
I'll be putting some posts up about these podcast episodes. You can look for those and comment there or just pick my most recent post and add a comment to it or DM me and send me uh, a note. Now, again, we've got two more mini episodes to do in this series, so stay tuned for tomorrow's episode.